it was hope, but there were also many setbacks. Like, I've lived through a few wars. That was a time that, although everything was very good, um, this found, these co-founders of us uh, started to think of how about applying and, and going uh, abroad. So, I mean, it's also a very small country uh, in general. So people in general move around. I mean, imagine that people who, I mean, I'm in Massachusetts. Imagine that everybody who's is born in like Western or Eastern Massachusetts just stays in Eastern Massachusetts. It's just too small. We are leaders. I think we need to have an impact ourselves. We need to start and talk about it. Otherwise, we overcame it with a lot of challenges. But why we are not sharing it with other women that are suffering exactly with exactly the same issues? Welcome to the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast, where we talk to computer scientists who immigrated from their home countries for study or for work or for other reasons. In these oral history interviews, you will find established and renowned computer scientists from across academia and industry narrating their experiences of immigrating from where they grew up to a completely different land, often the US. My name is Indy Gupta, and I'm your host. This is episode 9. The Middle East consists of about 18 countries spread mainly over the western part of Asia, with a smattering of a few countries in Europe and Africa. Most of the Middle East countries lie in a large area known as the Levant in the western part of Asia. Among these countries in the Middle East, the second largest in area is Iran. In the entire world, Iran is the 17th most populous and 17th largest country by area according to the statistics on Wikipedia. Of course, Iran is a country with an autocratic regime and a country with which the US, Canada, and Europe has had fraught relations for many decades. At the same time, many Iranian students migrate every year to North America and to Europe for studies and for work, and they have done so for many, many years and many decades. The first of our two guests in today's episode is originally from Iran. Her name is... Sudeh Farouki. She has founded multiple successful startup companies, one in Iran and one in Canada. And she's also gotten a PhD from Europe along the way. Our second country in today's episode is one of the smallest countries in the Middle East, Lebanon. In fact, in the Middle East, Lebanon is the fourth smallest country by size. At 4,000 square miles, it is slightly smaller than the US state of Connecticut. Yet, Lebanon is very densely populated, being the 21st densest nation in the world. The second of our two guests in today's episode is originally from Lebanon. His name is Fadil Adib. He is now a professor of electrical engineering and computer science at MIT. I'm going to briefly introduce the speakers, our narrators, our guests, in the order that you have heard them so far, so that you may recognize them. Here they are. The first voice is that of Sudeir Farohi, who is currently Vice President of Product at Nakisa in Montreal, Canada. So they grew up in the small town of Abade near Shiraz, like the wine Shiraz, in Iran. She received her Master's and Bachelor's degrees in Software Engineering from Shahid Behesti University in Tehran, in Iran, the capital of Iran, in 2011 and 2008 respectively. 
During her studies in Iran, Sudeir founded a successful startup company called Service-Oriented Enterprise Architecture Institute with her friends and a professor. Around 2013, Sudeir Faruqi left Iran to pursue her PhD at the Vienna Institute of Technology. After getting her PhD in 2016, Sudeir moved to Canada to work in a startup incubator and founded her second company, C2RO. C2RO's main product is, as Sudeir Faruqi describes it beautifully, the Google Analytics of physical spaces using security cameras. And in just a few years since its founding in 2016, C2RO has raised over $6 million equity and non-equity money and has 23 employees already. Sudeir Faruqi has won multiple recognitions, including the Top 750 Digital Innovators Worldwide Award from Databird Journal 2018, and an innovator transforming the AI video analytics industry by SAP 2021 and several other awards. We are leaders. I think we need to have an impact ourselves. When you hear this voice, remember, born in Iran, now in Canada, entrepreneur and co-founder of companies in Iran and Canada with a PhD in between from Austria. Our second guest is Fadil Adib, an associate professor at MIT in the Electrical Engineering and Computer Science Department. Fadil was born in a small town in Lebanon, did his bachelor's from the American University of Beirut in 2011, then moved to the U.S. to pursue his master's and Ph.D. from MIT. All that happened in 2011. After finishing his Ph.D. at MIT in 2016, he was hired by MIT as an assistant professor and he received tenure in just a few years to become an associate professor. Fadil Adib invents new technologies to interconnect, sense, and perceive the physical world. He is also an entrepreneur. His commercialized technologies are used to monitor thousands of patients with Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and COVID-19. His research and entrepreneurial activities have won him recognition in MIT Technology Review's Innovators TR35 Under 35 Award and the prestigious National Forbes 30 Under 30 list. These awards are given to a select set of individuals who are very young and under a certain age. Here's Fadil Adib's voice. It was hope, but there were also many setbacks. Like, I've lived through a few wars. When you hear this voice, remember, born in Lebanon, now in the US, professor at MIT, and entrepreneur. Because the Middle East is so massive, with a combined population comparable to the entire population size of the US, and because the Middle East is highly multicultural, with nearly all of the religions of the world sharing the neighborhood in close proximity, no single episode of this podcast can capture the experiences and complexities of all the immigrants and the lands uh, that are in the Middle East. And that's not our goal here in this episode at all. Instead, our aim is to talk to two young yet amazingly successful computer scientists and listen to their amazing and intriguing stories of origin, stories of immigration, and stories of where they have come today, and a sign of where they might be headed in the coming years. This episode will hopefully highlight the entrepreneurial spirit and origins of these two guests. Covered in this episode include topics like politics, unavoidable and inseparable from human life, how to become an entrepreneur, does a PhD help one to be a better entrepreneur? Listen and find out. Oh, and they have plenty of advice based on their experience on topics like imposter syndrome, diversity, how women can manage both a family and a career simultaneously, 
advice and thoughts that hopefully will be useful to all of our listeners, whether you are a student, whether you're a researcher in academia, whether you're a faculty member, whether you're a researcher in industry, whether you're an entrepreneur, or whether you're just a computer scientist, or even not a computer scientist, whether you're just listening in to hear stories. This is a lead episode and features excerpts from the interviews. The episodes following this lead episode contain the full oral history interviews with these individual computer scientists. These oral history interviews are not intended to be a representative sample or to help us draw any conclusions. They are the personal immigration stories of two prominent computer scientists who immigrated from the Middle East. You can find us on the web at csimmigrant.org. There's more information about the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast at the website. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at the handle csimmigrant. Information at the website csimmigrant.org includes episode guides with chapter markers. And of course, there are chapter markers on the podcast players that you're using. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast. Act 1, we discuss education in Iran schools and Lebanon's American University of Beirut. We draw a bit of a contrast to U.S. schools and U.S. universities. First up is Sudeya Farouhi discussing the schools in Iran where she studied as a kid. Yeah, everything is, is in Farsi, Persian, uh, of course. Um, yeah, so the elementary school, um, previously for us, it was five years elementary school then three years, uh, the, the middle one, and then uh, three years high school, and then a pre-university that was like the fourth years at, at high school that you were passing at the same at the same university. Now it's different. Now it's very similar to uh, here in North America. Um, back then, um, yeah, the, the everything was in Farsi. Uh, the math and physics um, was was uh, taught in, in, in Farsi as well. And uh, starting from... Uh, in, Grade one, uh, we had very, very light um, uh, math. But when I see now here the education system, um, I think when people are migrating here, I see that the difference and the knowledge of kids that they raise with the elementary school and system in Iran is much higher than people, uh, kids here in North America. That means Mm. that it was like more uh, intense, I would say. And each grade of us was like much more... Um, probably educational material and heavy, and I'm not saying which one was better, but uh, for our, for us, I remember vividly that um, grade four, for instance, um, that we were uh, actually, uh, it was very intense in, in math, and they were like saying, wow, what's the grade that you have? Because that's like, that, that means that how strong you are in math, because grade four is like, the math is like, has a next level, you know. Next, we hear Fadil Adib discussing the dense computer science curriculum, computer engineering curriculum in the American University of Beirut. Is the curricula uh, that you went through in AUB, were there similarities between that curricula and the computer science curricula that you see in U.S. universities? Was it structured similarly? Uh, To some extent, it is. I actually did like that curriculum in the sense that it has... relatively small number of introductory courses mm. but then you take you are we take a for example a full undergraduate computer networks class which i thought was super helpful for me 
Uh, we take a, a full class on like operating systems, another one on databases. One of the things to keep in mind is that the way our schooling works is it's almost as if we do freshman in high school. And then we do another, on top of it, we do four years of college, including summers. So summers are included. So you end up with the equivalent of about six years uh, if you were to compare it to um, here in the US. And that's was very good for me because I ended up having very advanced, relatively advanced CS, but also relatively advanced EE background where we took a lot of electronics and circuits, but, and we also took a lot of uh, like advanced algorithms. Our final year of high school is equivalent to freshman. So it's this general, but it's, uh, you already get stratified into, for example, I was in math and physics. So we take a lot of, we take um, definitely calculus one and two, and maybe a little bit of calculus three in school, um, conics, things like conics. We, the physics that we take is equivalent to the introductory, the two like ele electrical as well as uh, 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 magnetics and mechanics. So these, we take them in, in the last year of high school. Hmm. Uh, but then in when we are in college, we have to take summer classes. Like the first summer, we have to take classes. The second summer, we have to take classes because they're expected to cram uh, five years in four years. So the university, the American University of Beirut is trying to abide by both the U.S. system where it's like four years, but yeah. also the Lebanese system, which expects you to take five years after that sort of one year that you do in high school. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast episode titled Middle East Entrepreneurs, featuring immigrant computer scientists from the Middle East. Act two, we discuss the Concours entrance exam to Iran's universities. Then the Lebanon entrance exam, which surprisingly is the same as the US SAT exam. He has the same one as used by US university admissions. First, here's Sudeh Farohi talking about the Concours entrance exam in Iran. Throughout the whole high school, I was very um, focused on passing the uh, uh, Concours, that is our university exam. Right? And because of that, um, we didn't have computer back then, by the way. So my, my brother passed concours and the, the university exam one year ahead of me. And uh, my, my father bought a computer for him as a gift. So he actually moved to, to Tehran and we have the computer in house uh, for just my brother. So I was not allowed to use it, but it was there. So I could kind of maybe get permission and use it. But I was doing the, uh, I was preparing myself for, for the university exam. And throughout that, pro that, that year, I was not even watching TV. I was not touching anything. I was not watching any, any film or anything because it was distracting me. And I had the computer, but and I was so excited to to honestly start working with it. But but I hold myself, and the first time that I was like using it as like my own, it was after um, I was successfully passed the exam with a great grade, and then I kind of started to to use it. This is this is two thousand three, so uh, that's the first time that I started to use. But of course, it wasn't programming at that time, <clears throat> and and then I step and and. I got to computer engineering and of course the first semester I started to, uh, you know, uh, start programming and it was back then C actually that I started to, to, to program in C and because the class was, uh, was C and then next semester we started C++ and, uh, you know, that was, the, that was the first experience that I had. Mm. So the, t uh, tell us a little bit about this university entrance exam. Is this 
an entrance exam for all the major universities in Iran, or does each university have its own entrance exam? And uh, also, you know, preparing for that, was it just the regular school curriculum that you had to study, or was it something else on the side you needed to do? Mm-hmm. Um, so for state university in Iran that are uh, the best ones in, in terms of the quality of the, uh, the prof and, and the, uh, you know, overall um, people and students, uh, yes, you need to pass the uh, national-wide uh, mm-hmm. uh, school um, exam. Um, and then there's also one that are for private schools, uh, private universities. This was for public and state universities. And it's extremely difficult and competitive. Like, I think I can just give you the number, but yeah, that uh, at that time that I passed the exam, there were 1.5 million total applicants and only 16.5% of them were, were admitted. And then have in mind, if you wanted to be at like top five public state universities, that all of them, they were in Tehran. And they, you know, if you want to go, for instance, for computer engineering, you have to be at, at one of those. And, and of course, I wanted to be in Tehran because, um, you know, they are the best universities. So I was among top one students that, that were admitted um, countrywide. And have in mind that I was from a small city. We didn't have any um, geographical uh, weight. So uh-huh. I was not fit for Tehran. So I needed to, co- to, to actually uh, do better versus a, per- a person that was living in Tehran because the distance to university was closer. So, and, and I could go easier to Shiraz University, but, you know, I wanted to go to the, you know, one of the top five universities. So it was a really big deal. And that was like the, uh, one of the achievements uh, of, of my life, honestly. Mm. I was the mm. number one um, uh, female student in, in my city with, uh, for, the, for the rank that I received. And I was like, yeah. they put, uh, you know, banners in the street with my name. So it was like a very big deal for the whole city. You're a celebrity. Yeah, <laughs> at that time. And then the the choice of major, do you have a choice or is the choice really depending on your rank in this exam? Mm-hmm. So and from from high school, you you either go to um, math and physics or uh, literature or um, 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 bio and, and science, right? So these three, they each mm-hmm. of them, they have uh, separated exams. So in so I was in math and physics, so I did the university national exam for the math and physics. And then there are a lot of other majors that you can go, including all the engineering, right? And um, of course, you are free to choose. You are free to choose the university and you are free to choose your major. But um, you need to rank it and it's based on your rank uh, that where you can you know be admitted. Father Ladeep talks about his early interest in different subjects, the SAT exam in Lebanon, and his eventual choice of computer engineering. To be honest, I enjoyed science and math in general. I also enjoyed languages and social sciences. I just loved to learn. Uh, That was sort of the general thing. Um, And I considered different options. I considered whether I wanted to... And I I was wondering, what is it that I can do uh, in, in high school? My parents are not engineers, so I, I real a lot of smart people were doing computer and communications engineering, and I was like, maybe that's what I should do. Uh, I applied to that. I applied to medicine, um, and I applied to business. 
And frankly, I was, we weren't as much exposed at the time. I knew that I liked uh, the sciences in general. So I, when I was accepted, I was like, okay, I'll try it out, see how it works, see how well I end up doing in it. Um, and uh, it, yeah, it ended up going well for me. So these SATs that you wrote, these are the same SAT exams that uh, students in the U.S. Uh, write for, for university here. Right, right. So there's the the SAT one, not the SAT two. I don't know if that's there's mm -hmm. still this distinction between them. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, the SAT is where we had to do the math, the writing, uh, and uh, the English. And at the time, the math was relatively easier for us because the the math that we take in school was is pretty advanced. The English was the the harder part because we, our vocabulary was not as rich as people who who for whom English is the native uh, language. Mm -hmm. And so, so you get into AUB, American University of Beirut, and like you mentioned before, you had interest in a variety of different things, business, social sciences, and, and science. And you're thinking, if I understood you right, as well, let's try out this computer science thing. Um, at what point of time did you start to think during your time at AUB that yeah, this is something that I like? I think I really like programming. Uh, I liked algorithms. It's like, oh... Uh, this new way of thinking, of making, frank, I, I remember when I started learning programming languages, I was like, oh, computers are not smart. The people who make computers are the smart ones. I remember, uh, I remember thinking about it, it's like the way these things work is because people write these elegant programs despite these very difficult constraints on them. Uh, and they, they are able to do the, these fascinating things. I think definitely, I think that was in my very first semester. I really enjoyed algorithms. I mean, we take programming and algorithms together where you, we learn sorting and searching and, uh, and, and what have you. Uh, but I also still like sort of um, hardware as well. We were taking hardware. So um, I like the ability of being able to build things. So I like building hardware things, but also being able to program them. And over the course of my undergrad, I just kept liking it more and more. And I've been doing that over the, the past, what, 14 years now. Life cannot escape politics, whether you're a student or an entrepreneur, even if you want to avoid it. The third act, the reasons why Sudeir Farouki left Iran, and then how the instability of life in Lebanon affected Fadl Adib. First, Sudeir Farouki describes the situation when the political climate changed for her after the elections of 2009 in Iran. Remember, at this point, she was already a successful entrepreneur with her startup and had every business reason to stay in Iran. But there was now an undercurrent. That was the time that Ahmadinejad got elected for the second time right. in Iran. Right. And um, then a little bit further, but then there were started to, uh, to come some demonstrations. People weren't happy, including mm. us. We were disappointed. Um, mm. um, and... Uh, that was the time that, although everything was very good, um, this found these co-founders of us uh, started to think of how about applying and, and going uh, abroad. Mm. Even and though the company was doing fairly well, the company was doing well. We had a beautiful life in Iran with uh, with my mm. husband. Uh, we got married actually finishing um, 
our uh, our bachelor when we got the job that we could pay the rent, right? So we got married. We had uh, we had a very nice very nice um, um, friendship network in Iran. You know, everybody was still in Iran. It wasn't the case that people are like outside that much. And that we had some people that they applied and like they were doing their PhD at that time, even outside uh, in you know main, mainly US, but. Uh, the majority of our classmates were staying there. We had a lot of fun gatherings, etc. So everything was perfect. Everything mm-hmm. was 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 great, and uh, yeah, the company was doing very well. But that was the time that um, we started to think. Yeah. So it was more the social instability and economic instability that led you and your husband to think about leaving Iran rather than you know just a company which was which seemed to be doing quite well at that point. And I vividly remember my husband was the one that first time approached me and said, Suda, what if we think of going abroad? And I was like, so against it. <laughs> I could not see myself leave, uh, uh, leave Iran. Like, it's, it was hard for me to imagine that because not that I'm very dependent to my family. Uh, I, I, of course, I love them and it was very good to, to, to be close to them. But overall, the, the, the sense of, and belonging to your own country was was very dominated uh, for me, and um, but you know, um, but I started to think as well. I started to observe what would be the situation, what would be the the opportunities, and uh, what are I'm going to miss maybe if I if I don't, and what are the maybe what's the uh, ceiling here for me? What's like the the cap of my my dreams? The um, the things that I can dream here versus going somewhere else, and um, that was that was you know mm. two thousand twelve that we started to apply, and we started right. applying in particular. We focus on uh, Europe, and um, yeah, that's the mm. story of uh, uh, immigration <laughs> started at that time. And Fadel Adib spoke about being born in 1989 and the hope in Lebanon right after the civil war of the 1980s. He also spoke about him dropping everything to do humanitarian work during his high school years in the early to mid-2000s. So I was born in Lebanon the same year the civil war ended. Um, so we had a civil war for about 15 years right before I was um, I was born. And while growing up, um, my parents used to... One of the, the most common phrases that my parents and their generation used to tell us is, uh, may you have uh, beautiful days. And the reason why they used to say that is because they meant that we would have peaceful days since they were just coming out of war. It was a, a time of um, a lot of uh, uh, um, sort of happiness, of... Uh, people were optimistic about the future, about rebuilding the country. I went to school in a village, uh, which was outside of Tripoli. My parents decided to send us to that school. It was called International School uh, because it was a secular, um, a very secular uh, school. And so they wanted to, uh, after a sectarian civil war uh, between uh, Muslims and Christians, they wanted uh, me and my sister to go to a school that had fundamentally secular principles. And so you described the time early in your childhood as being kind of a time of hope and renewal in the country right after the civil war. Right. Did that last for a while as you were in school or did that? Um, so, you, you know, uh, when you grow up in Lebanon, I 
it was hope, but there were also many setbacks. Like I've lived through a few wars um, while growing up. I remember seeing very um, sort of heartbreaking uh, um, footage on on TV. Uh, I've lived through a, a couple of wars where I had to stop doing everything and just work on humanitarian aid. Mm. And sometimes whenever that happens, I have to do that again today mm. because at the end of the day, human lives are more important um, mm. than anything. But there was still this feeling of optimism. It went on until I was about 15. Mm. Uh, but then we had a, a, a big assassination in, in the country of our prime minister was assassinated. And unfortunately, I don't think the country ever recovered from that. And it's been actually quite... Mm. Um, like there has been some level of uh, unrest since, mm. uh, since then. But you live through it and you, you want to live like people. Uh, there's a saying in Lebanon that people will party even under when like they're being bombed because you want to live. We love life. Uh, and that is the way that, that you fight for yourself. It's by by letting yourself live. So the, the assassination you were referring to is Rafiq Hariri. Right, right. The Rafiq Hariri assassination, I think around in 2005, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So you mentioned that when um, war happened or a humanitarian crisis happened, you had to essentially drop everything and, um, and, and, and do something for the humanitarian crisis. Can you give some experiences of yours? Yeah. So, for example, in 2006, there was a war between um, Hezbollah and Israel. And um, we, I, we saw the images on, uh, on like the, the TV. We saw the video footage and there were like kids who had nothing that they could do in the south, south of Lebanon. I grew up in the north. That was in the south. And that it happened during the summer when which was before my final year, senior year of high school. I was supposed to be studying for my SATs back then. You know, these are also important in Lebanon to be able to be admitted into uh, into undergrad. And they were also the year before my baccalaureate, uh, uh, where people usually start studying a year in advance for these major exams that we have to take. But of course, I couldn't do any of that. So um, I, I started studying the very, like, right away, I... Um, like the, the war started, I think, in June or in July. I can't remember exactly. Um, we had to put everything to the side and I joined the Red Cross. Uh, mm. And we started also creating uh, connections with the United Nations uh, for hum humanitarian aid. So we would we were in a city that was relatively far from where the war zone was. And so we would go around, we would collect money, we would go to the to the markets, we would Tell people, look, where we want to buy like tissue paper. We want to buy clothes. We want, just want to buy to the refugees who are moving from the south and coming here. And we collected, we did all of this fundraising. We were working with the UN. People would give it to us for free. And so then we would go and like sort of take it also uh, uh, to people and help them with their, with their um, sort of being able to get back to their uh, lives. In October of this year, 2021, Lebanon was in the news when a large part of the country lost electric power. You might think that this is small news, perhaps just a blip. But as Fadl talks about it, power cuts have, for a while, been a way of life in Lebanon. I start by asking him about the political instability. Again, returning a bit to the political instability which we talked about earlier, that of course was um, you know, at its peak when during your years in AUB 2007 to 2011, that was right after Rafiq Hariri's assassination in 2005. 
did that have an effect on um, your life in the university and the life of your friends? Yeah, of course. I think it was it was a very scary time. I remember in my like first year or maybe first couple of years, every like weekend there would be a bombing somewhere in the capital or in the larger capital where there was a instability. So you're afraid for your life, really. Uh, there, um, and then you're like, oh, is any the other thing about when these things happen is, do I know anyone who was impacted? Where did this happen? I heard this. Uh, who was assassinated? Um, all of these things. You're trying to study at the same time. So it was a bit crazy. And then also in May of 2008, there was also a very a lot of civil unrest in uh, in my uh, uh, in Beirut. We had to escape the city uh, mm. early around dawn uh, to make it uh, home. And then for three weeks, we had no college because we were like, what, what the hell is going to happen? Um, in the country, we were studying. Uh, but you had all of these sort of things that, that pull you away. I mean, the news, it really, politics invades your life. When I came to the U.S. for an internship, the first thing that I felt is, oh my goodness, politics is not invading my life. I can finally, for the first time, actually focus. Of course, when I speak to my family, I'm checking on them. But I am able to focus on doing work. So um, instead of being of trying to cram so much in 10% of the time, I have 100% of the time. I have 10 times more to be able to actually do work. I know it sounds like it sounds like an exaggeration, but it is not. Earlier this year, I had to go back to Lebanon because my mother uh, contracted a critical case of COVID. Mm-hmm. She went, uh, she was hospitalized, so we were concerned. Uh, like it was a very stressful time, but I had to go and spend two and a half weeks. And I realized why I used to feel that way. You lose electricity, you lose, uh, and then you're waiting for like a backup generator to come. When you lose the, the generator, you need to wait for the internet to come back up. You're literally for like every 10 minutes, you can get one minute done and it, it's very interrupted. So I I think looking back, it was, it was very hard and it's still very hard. And there's all of these constraints that people don't realize. And so when I came to the US, the thing that I realized, being able to work continuously is such a privilege that... I never had before, and that really helped me also. It's almost as if someone was fasting and some suddenly they they ate and they have all of that energy. And so for me, it's like it was constrained and suddenly these constraints were removed and I kept working almost at the same pace. And so I was able to uh, do much more work than I was able to do in a more constrained environment. I hope your mother recovered and is doing better. Yeah, thankfully she recovered, actually. uh, And she arrived in the U.S. on Mother's Day. uh, So that was a... I had a very nice uh, uh, gift for Mother's Day this year. Yes, yes, a gift for both you and your your mother. Uh, I think going back to the country of origin always is a very interesting experience because you get a culture shock. Because uh, the country has moved a little bit, but then again, you also get reminded of many of the reasons that uh, made it very hard to work there. And in a sense, a lot of this is survival, right? You know, the, the generator example you were giving is just just basic day to day things that we take for granted living here in the in the U.S. and in Canada. Um, did the instability uh, during your years in AUB did that have a role to play in your decision to? Uh, migrate to the U.S. or was it largely just, you know, I'm just interested in going to the best place? I think probably in middle school, I wanted to look, I mean, the U.S. is still the land of opportunities, despite what 
some people might say, I, I always felt that if you want to go to a place where you can grow, the U.S. was such a big attraction. I think it still is. I mean, my students come from all types of backgrounds from within the U.S. and around the world. And uh, I wanted to do that. In fact, me staying in Lebanon, I mean, there was a great institution that I could go to, which was my undergraduate university, but I also wanted to afterwards be able to move and to actually be able to come to a top university in the U.S. and work uh, and do research. Were your batchmates with you in AUB, uh, where did they go? You know, did many of them come to the U.S.? Did they stay in industry in Lebanon or in generally in Asia? What happened to them? Most people in Lebanon immigrate in general. I think the statistics are like 50% of the people who are in my age group leave. Um, they either go to like the Arab Gulf countries where there is much more opportunities to work um, or they come to the US or to Europe where uh, one of the good things is that the education is actually uh, pretty good. And so we're very well prepared to be able to do things, but also... Uh, Historically, people from that region always moved. I mean, there's uh, they've always have moved around into it and out of it. It's it's a, a coastal uh, country altogether. And when people are by the sea, the sea, they're always thinking about where do you want to go next. It sounds like there is a an itinerant or nomadic DNA or a gene in there somewhere that. 50% is a large number and, and that must affect the country quite a bit too. Are there discussions of in the country of in Lebanon of how to maybe stop this brain drain and, and keep people back? Or is that? When we were young and there was optimism, people used to talk about these things. I think there is very little. Unfortunately, there is not much optimism now. Um, so, I mean, it's also a very small country uh, in general. So... People in general move around. I mean, imagine that people who, I mean, I'm in Massachusetts. Imagine that everybody who uh, is born in like Western or uh, Eastern Massachusetts just stays in Eastern Massachusetts. It's just too small uh, to be staying there. Even if people wanted to, a lot of are going to move uh, to other parts of the state or other parts of the country. You are listening to the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast episode titled Middle East Entrepreneurs, featuring immigrant computer scientists from the Middle East. This next act, the entrepreneur gene and discovering it and not always knowing that you're an entrepreneur at heart until you've already become one. Up first, the journey of Sudeh Farooqi's transition from studying while working to actually founding a startup in Iran and realizing that she had unconsciously become an entrepreneur. Let me get back to uh, my, my bachelor. So 2003, 2000, uh, 2008, I finished my bachelor. So it was five years, intense study. I couldn't work and I even didn't, uh, think, didn't think that time that I can work in parallel uh, because like bachelor um, semesters are, are really heavy. And then you need, the ma- you need a degree to start you know, going and uh, exploring job opportunities. So beginning of my master, while I step into master, um, I started to work in telecommunication um, space in a company. 
And uh, so in parallel, I was finishing my master and I was studying uh, uh, and I was working the first time uh, and, and it was excellent opportunity and also very challenging, you know, as a, as a woman <laughs> stepping into a workforce in STEM. And, and the, of course, the workforce was uh, male dominated. We were in a private company and, and the quality of uh, colleagues in terms of the education was really high. Uh, but still, I was like feeling the pressure and that, you know, that's kind of more more male around the, the table in a meeting and, and, and so forth. 2008 to 2011, I was um, working at that, at that company. I was actually working with my husband at the same company and the same group. I was managing him at some point, etc. So there are a lot of back and forth uh, in terms of, you know, the, the strategies uh, we kind of built together and uh, challenges that I faced uh, because I was promoted to a product manager and team lead. So I was managing seven engineers, all male, and I was pretty young, you know, uh, 25, six at that time. So uh, a lot of a lot of things that I learned actually for my leadership at that time. And then it was like four years in that uh, um, um, company. I was learning a lot beginning of it. And then I stepped into my comfort zone when I feel, wow, I have a very good status. I had a good salary. I know what to do. It's very comfortable for me to go uh, to work and, you know, do what, what I'm very good at. And and that is the time for me that I, as an individual and as an ambitious person, I, I push myself. I, I kind of push myself out of my comfort zone. And that was the time that... Um, I was finishing also the the master, so I was like the the, the latest years of the master. I had research on service oriented architecture and enterprise architecture. That was like the 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 research that I was working on, and there were like three other uh, classmates dash friends, uh, including my husband, that we were we were working with the same prof, the same field, and um, we we didn't have any idea of entrepreneurship, nothing. And uh, we were just kind of, I would say, considered to be um, expert in that domain in Iran at that time because SOA was a big deal uh, in theory. And, and we were kind of thinking, oh, well, how we can use this maybe in, in industry because nobody is working on it in a commercial uh, manner, right? And um, four of us came together at like a friendly gathering and we, we thought, you know what, how about thinking of like making a... Uh, either a spin-off or industrial dash research lab we were calling it and uh, we work on projects and we take projects from other enterprises and we and we kind of try to establish this as a we are the first one uh, for the SOA in Iran right and um, we were we were interested all of us and we said all right so let's go to our prof that was a well-known uh, professor at the uh, service oriented like the number one I would say from Shahid Beshti, and we said, uh, we have this idea, uh, would you be able to support us, or what do you think? And um, he, he also got excited, he said, well, this is a very nice idea, and, and he's very credible in the domain, so he said, I can sponsor you guys, uh, so you start working on it, uh, you establish it, I will provide the, uh, the font, and I'll provide you the even the location because you can work on, like there is an office here, you can, this is, univer- this is Shahid Beshti University, right? And uh, I, I quit my job. I quitted my job with the week after. And uh, all of the other folks, they said, we're going to stay part-time. But I quitted my job. And I, I was like the one staying full-time in the, in the lab, that office. 
and I got the equipment, I got the server, you know, and think of, okay, what would be the, the services we offer, the material we prepared, the website, like everything from ground up. We started to build the name, the branding, everything. But, and, and that feeling of, wow, you're creating something from scratch. You are building it on your own. The vision is yours. The, the, the way that you provide the services is your idea. And the way do you deliver it, again, it's your, your plan. You go and talk to potential customers. And we, we were not thinking about money. And that's like the, the fundraising part of it was, was out. And it was a serious company. And um, I, I enjoyed it so much. And that was actually the first time that I felt that, wow, this is the, I, I'm entrepreneur in heart. And uh, I was not thinking this is entrepreneurship because I was not intending to be an entrepreneur or something like this was like by nature. And, you know, and um, this is 2012. So we were working on it. We were loving it. We were like having so much fun, four friends working in a company. And uh, we had a lot of good exposure because we were the first one. Right. We were getting um, great projects, very well paid job. And um, and and it was not comparable with the previous previous job. Although we were so happy on the other one, but uh, the other the other folks also joined us uh, full time because the situation was going very well, and we were getting a lot of project. We couldn't handle it. We had um, you know meetings with very top notch people in Iran, and they were like kind of uh, talking about us in terms of the services that we offer. And MIT professor Fadil Adib talks about his creative origins and his first steps to research. Um, I want to ask about your first steps into research. Did you get involved with research at uh, AUB in your undergrad? Yeah, I remember uh, I always wanted to do something that is new and different. So I knew that I liked creating new things even when I was uh, very young. So this realm of invention. And when I got to undergrad, I was like, huh. Finally, we can do something that is different. We can do something that is possibly inventive. And I realized that the way to do that is by doing research. So I, uh, uh, one of my uh, professors had just moved actually from, he had just joined the university. He had just moved from, in, he was in the US in, at Intel and he had just moved back to Lebanon. And in my spring semester of the very first year, he asked me if I wanted to do research and I just jumped on it. So in my first year, I started doing research with him and I continued doing that. Uh, throughout my um, my undergraduate degree. What helps one be a good entrepreneur? Did the PhD help our guests? We switch the order of the narrators in this next act. First up, I ask Fadil Adib, professor at MIT, and he talks about why students doing research should also think of entrepreneurship. So I want to ask a question about, um, well, I guess academia versus industry, but in a slightly different way. So you have a, you've had a significant success with commercializing some of your research results. Uh, nowadays, um, even grad students, as when they're in their PhD programs, sometimes uh, they think of, oh, you know, should I open source this? Should I spend the extra amount of energy and effort and time on making this code, you know, less research code and like more open source code? And then, of course, as faculty members, we already have a lot of 
very busy lives teaching and doing research and then doing entrepreneurial activities is an even higher overhead on that. Uh, so I wanted to get your thoughts on that, um, you know, how you managed uh, the commercialization and entrepreneurialization of your technologies. Yeah. So one thing to keep, the one thing that I'm thinking about always is we're not publishing for just for the sake of getting papers. In fact, we spend so, in systems, we spend so much time building a system. Usually what about, um, I mean, it could be anywhere between at least six months really on the short end, but more of the, most of the time it's at least a year, it's of the order of a year and a half, right? Building a system. Do you really want that thing that you built to be a paper that maybe someone's gonna pick up, maybe someone's gonna do something with it? Or do you want, or do you want it to have a lot of impact? This year and a half that you spent on something, do you want it to try to have uh, impact so it can change the world? Why did you do this in the first place? So for me, when I was doing my PhD, um, I so first off, I had to build the thing to make it actually work, and people did not believe that it worked. So we had to build a demo and have people come over. And I'm I was a bit entrepreneurial in nature, so I already I started thinking and telling my advisor, look, we need to start a company based on this, mm-hmm. uh, and she she also believed. Uh, in that as well. And so we spent a lot of time refining it and showing it to people and every time improving it. And in fact, when I was doing my job interviews, I took my device to each of my 16 interviews and every single time I tested it live. And so people could really like falsify me. If it's not, we are if you think this is not gonna work, you're gonna be able to see it there that it's not working. And for me, that was important. It was important to Show, let people believe that it is actually working in this environment where there's so many other people and I'm trying to sort of uh, do the sensing. Did it work uh, every one of those 16 times? It did. It did, actually. I mean, it worked in the in the White House when he demoed it to President Obama, so it should work after. We wouldn't have showed it back then. Uh, and that's yet another story, uh, actually, that I'd be happy to to share. Um, yeah, please, please, please talk about that experience, too. Yes. So what happened is the whole the whole uh, way in was in, in which we were invited to the White House is um, we were I was we were interested in commercializing the technology. We participated. MIT has this entrepreneurial entrepreneurial competition. The first year we participated, we made it only to the semifinals. The second year we made it to the finals, hmm. and so we were picked up by this group that nominated us to go to the White House, and we had to do a, a demo. And we were not sure if we were going to do it to to President Obama at the time. Hmm. Um, and so we take uh, we take our device, we fly to DC, we set it up uh, the the day before in the hotel in the hotel lobby, and uh, sort of one of the people I was working with was like, "Oh, it feels like Mission Impossible, like you're setting up, and then tomorrow we're going to the White House." Anyway, then we go in, and when you go to the White House, you have to go through so many different layers of security, and the dogs really sniffed out the wires, like they pulled it apart. It's a research prototype. <laughs> So we go in, we set it up, it's not working. Of course it's not working, like the dogs really pulled it apart. And so we have about three hours before someone steps in and it could be the president. And everybody starts and I'm like, it works. I know it works. I've tested it and I know it works. So I keep sort of trying to debug it and trying all the knobs that I know how to debug. It's like, there's two hours left, it's not working. There's one hour left, There's not. it's not working. There's like 30 minutes left, it's not working. And about 10 minutes before... 
uh, uh, people start walking in is when it starts working. And I tested it and I tested it a few times. It's just a bunch of loose connections mm. at the time that I really need to find where all of these are. So it's like research. You just have to do it in three hours. Uh, and then it worked well, and he was actually quite surprised that it worked uh, um, that it worked that well. Uh, where I, I was actually the subject of the demo, and I showed that this wireless device that is in there was could monitor my breathing and heart rate without touching my body. Mm. Um, and so I was not very concerned. I mean, I knew if it didn't work, I would know how to make it work without having to change anything in it. So every whenever I had an interview, I would go in the morning, I would test it out. In that setup, I would just make sure that it is working and then I would uh, sort of uh, leave it there. And to be honest, even if it doesn't work that well, people know it's a research prototype that you're trying to demo in real uh, in real life. And that's what I tell my students now. So we now invent every single project that we're thinking about. Something, I mean, a lot of our projects are moonshot ideas. So yeah. our, but eventually we want it to have impact. So we try a crazy idea. If it works, great. Uh, if um, it doesn't work, we try to pivot quickly, but then we build on it. So we ha we write the paper, but then we're building this demo. We also create a video about it because we're building these physical things. And so we usually also create videos about it that can help us talk about it. And then we this building good work allows us to build on top of it. One of the hardest things in research is, do you build something and are you able to build yet another system on top of it? And if you build a really robust system, then you are able to build on top of it. And sometimes we open source our code. Like for example, a lot of our code on Ocean IoT, uh, we are open sourcing all of that because there's so much scientific value in it. And we did. We don't just open source the code. We also open source the schematics. We also write step-by-step -step tutorials because people need to know. I mean, this is interdisciplinary work. People are coming from different backgrounds to try to build it. If we want our work to have impact and go beyond just a paper, um, how do you do that? The way is you need to really push it all the way, uh, wherever that is. I mean, sometimes it could be through deployment. Uh, maybe not every paper is gonna is gonna do that, but we strive to do that with every paper because really that's what maximizes the impact. And sometimes people might think that oh, what matters is the number of papers, or uh, what matters is the the number of citations. The number of citations might be a good metric. The number of papers is never a good metric. Uh, it's, I mean, if someone has, I don't know, 80 papers versus 100 papers or 20 papers, what I care about in is in what way have these people changed the world? Uh, that's what matters. Yeah, that's very beautifully put. And, and an almost heart-stopping experience in the White House, but it seemed like it worked out in the end. Um, I guess the, the my takeaways from that experience were, be prepared if you're doing a live demo of any kind be prepared uh, well ahead of time uh, but then also uh, kind of know your system in depth so that you're confident that if something goes wrong you can you have a plan b and a plan c absolutely and so there Faruqi, founder of multiple startups talks about how her phd which she did in between her two startups in iran and canada helped her mature and be a more mature entrepreneur a slightly different uh, perspective question. So you did a PhD and then you you know went back to being an entrepreneur. Do you feel like the PhD or doing the PhD actually helped you be a better entrepreneur? <clears throat> it's a question that I get a lot, Indy, and and actually it's a it's a very powerful question. I would say it helped me not for the degree. Not for the degree. The degree is good, you know, you have a PhD there, but it's not like moving the dial. 
what what it changed in me i think there were a lot of a few a few bold characteristics that i can say it helped me be a better entrepreneur number one is how i manage uncertainty in my view the best entrepreneurs are the one that they can handle uncertainty and they can make a decision when they don't have enough input when they don't have enough clarity of the situation they need to make a call and go ahead and then if the situation change and they figure out new information they are they need to accept the 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 problem the issue the failure mm-hmm. and they start over that managing uncertainty for a phd for me because i started my phd didn't have any topic was very difficult for me to to start building that topic and i figured out through collaboration with a few postdocs from other universities and when i managed to understand what's the uh, path for me to research i i was so successful in writing strong papers proving very innovative ideas and and so forth so number one managing uncertainty i think that international networking and communication it's not necessarily a characteristic of phd students but i did it well throughout the uh, conferences that i went mm-hmm. and and it's very nice that we actually met in conference mm-hmm. right yes. at uh, you know uh, back to back to the phd you were the educator of course era that i passed and i was so delighted that i met you <laughs> in a conference so that was just in parentheses that presentation i think it also helped me to be comfortable presenting to to uh to group of people that sometimes they were like over 100 at that time that was like you are young and you are presenting your idea and you are the expert in that field because you are an expert you gain the confidence to speak about it to present it and that's also very important and that the storytelling what's the story of your phd what's the story of your research because you go to a networking event in a conference right. and you are presenting and you need to you know have like elevator pitch that we had in the uh, startup world right. so i i learned that as well there in uh, and of course all of it is english right because my previous experience was totally in persian and it was like a different uh, different group of people different mindset etc and then the another aspect that i want to want to say was that um the attitude of get things done on your own and in a way started to kind of build self motivation for finishing your work and go ahead even if there are not that many milestones but you build milestone through the 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 you know conferences that you want to publish your papers the deadlines that you need to meet and the peer reviews that you receive and you need to have your judgment on and on on changing it i think those all of those helped me also to kind of getting stronger in that attitude of get things done have a good judgment and uh, improve improve my work and of course i focus on practical research versus theoretical and that was also helpful for me because i was leading the r&d team for a very long period in in my own company and and the initial part of it were coming from my own uh, phd research because i knew that um i i need to be a, a a credible researcher at that time and i wanted to build a credible research team then mm. at my own startup mm. it almost sounds like uh, you were able to use your time in the phd program as a kind of a training ground to train yourself to kind of transition to the 
Western entrepreneurial world with, you know, practicing presentation, practicing storytelling, practicing managing of conflicts, managing changes. Absolutely. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast episode titled Middle East Entrepreneurs featuring immigrant computer scientists from the Middle East. The Middle East speaks many languages, but one dominates, of course, Arabic. Father Ladeep talks about the language in Lebanon schools and elsewhere. Yeah, so science and math in Lebanon, uh, you either can take them in English or in French. Mm -hmm. uh, these are the, and, and your parents choose which type of school you're going to go to. Mm -hmm. Uh, so when it comes to sciences and math, I've had pretty much my entire schooling in uh, uh, in English. We take um, other things like history or geography or some of the social sciences. We learn them in Arabic, which is uh, the native uh, language. But one of the things to, to know about Arabic is that spoken Arabic is very different from, um, like, for example, the different dialects that people speak. And linguists even consider them to be sufficiently different languages mm -hmm. to the sense that um, uh, the written Arabic, uh, which is the one you also learn in school, this dates back more than 1500 years ago and it has been preserved for all of this time. But the language we speak is almost like a creole of Arabic and whatever languages were there, including some English and some French, which is part of our uh, everyday vernacular. Mm. And is Arabic different in different parts of the world? So the Le Lebanon Arabic will be different from the Arabic spoken in, say, Saudi Arabia. Right, right. They are the, they are to some extent mutually intelligible, but I think they're more intelligible the closer you are. So, for example, it's much easier to understand Syrian Arabic or Palestinian Arabic or Jordanian Arabic because these are countries that the, the Arabic has evolved reasonably close. It's much harder to understand Moroccan or Tunisian Arabic because these are in... Uh, sort of Western Africa. I understand them a bit because my great-grandmother is from Tunisia. Uh, but uh, the further you are, the languages change. Although, interestingly, modern media has brought them a little bit closer together again, which is uh, uh, fascinating in modern times. And your great-grandmother migrated from Tunisia to Lebanon? Yeah, so my mom's grandmother, she uh, immigrated from Tunisia to Lebanon. But you have to think about it at the time. That was all part of the Ottoman Empire. So yes. at the time, it's like moving from uh, Massachusetts to California in the U.S. Today, they moved from Tunisia to uh, uh, to Lebanon. And there was all, there's also this whole uh, story about how they ended up in Tunisia in the first place because they were like her grandmother was in Sicily. Uh, in, in southern Italy. But that's what happens in around the Mediterranean. People move around. Actually, pretty historically, they moved around a lot. Yeah, a lot of nomadic movement there. Right. Um, and like you said, when the Ottoman Empire was there, it was pretty large and it covered a large area. So people would just move inside the empire itself. And here's Sudeh Farouki describing language, Farsi, which is a common language in Iran schools, and about learning English in her school in Iran. When did you start learning English as, I suppose, as a, as a language, as a third language? Correct, correct. So Arabic was the second one that, that um, we started. Um, I, I think in uh, elementary school, if I remember correctly, we had a little bit of Arabic, but of course uh, it was a religious system, so we were 
exposed to Arabic uh, much earlier, right? But then um, English was uh, it's so funny because the English that we learn is mainly very, very focused in grammar. So from their day first, you need to just uh, memorize words and remember grammar. And, and so you are a very good writer, I would say, in terms of, you know, you write very correctly, a very heavy grammar and, and uh, you know, things that maybe I have not even used <laughs> now, and, and also words, but no speaking, um, no listening, you know, like even our, our teacher was coming to, to uh, the class and, and she was speaking full Farsi and teaching the English grammar, you know, and asking us the word by word to uh, memorize. This is grade six on that we started to expose um, by, by English. And then uh, high school, certainly we had more advanced um, English. And then in university, uh, you have the English that is uh, related to your major. For instance, if you're computer science uh, or computer engineering, you have an English that is a more, uh, you know, um, the terminology and everything that you use in this major, it's uh, special English that you use. The dreaded imposter syndrome, when you feel like a failure even in the midst of success, like you don't belong to your work community, like your talents and skills are just out of place in your workplace, like you are basically an imposter. Many researchers and entrepreneurs suffer from the imposter syndrome. Sometimes, occasionally, sometimes the syndrome is chronic. First up is Sudhay Faroqi describing her ideas for how we can address imposter syndrome individually and also in the community. Imposter syndrome is something that you mentioned that a lot of women deal with, um, and a lot of researchers and a lot of entrepreneurs deal with. Are there pieces of advice or rules of thumb you have? Mm -hmm. I think initially I would say awareness is number one uh, for for uh, overcoming it, because when I was feeling it, the feeling is like this, that you are somewhere that either other people uh, don't... Um, appreciate that you deserve the, the place you are in terms of, you know, the career path or yourself because you are the, the, the worst enemy of your, your success initially. If, if you don't go out of your own way, uh, that, that's the hardest part to overcome. Mm. I think initially you need to figure out that there is this syndrome <laughs> and you need to just realize that you are not alone feeling that. I think that was number one step for me, the realization and awareness. Mm -hmm. And then the way that I did that, the way that I realized that, but it was by reading books of uh, about uh, other female executives, uh, entrepreneurs. For instance, I started to know Sheryl Sandberg from Facebook. Mm -hmm. And I read her uh, Lean In book, and I actually listened to audiobooks. So I, I listened to her audiobook with her voice. And I was like saying, oh, my God, the CEO of, CEO of Facebook feel that way <laughs> in her career path. And I'm feeling the same in terms of, you know, this, this imposter syndrome and the challenges that she, she as a working mom she faced. And that was like a moment for me that, you know what? I need to work on it. I need to be aware. I need to read about it. I need to see how I can uh, strengthen my, my muscle in a way of um, um, 
what should I do, what I shouldn't do. For instance, uh, being surrounded by people that uh, empower you and really take the others, the, the people that depower you and give you negative energy out of your network. Mm. Like that is that as simple as this one. Mm. And uh, talk to people, have mentor, uh, be upfront about your, your feeling, realize those. And I think those are the, the, the things that I did. Mm. And of course, having a role model in a way of, you know, seeing people, their challenges. We are all human at the end, right? So any successful female or male, like Jeff Bezos, like whoever that we can imagine, Ellen Moss, like they are all at the end humans. They have a lot of challenges that if we see and if we hear the stories, we learn how to overcome challenges. And I think that was actually indeed the reason that I started my blog. Because I was thinking of, there are a lot of things that I had to overcome, but I was like experiencing it maybe for the first time and I was not knowing about it like that other women or, um, you know, executives went through. Why not I shared it and then read the others? Sharing stories is very powerful. You can find a link to Sudeh Farohi's blog on our website, csimmigrant.org. And here's MIT professor Father Ladib talking about failures, rejections, and imposter syndrome. Do you have advice for people on how to deal with failure, rejections, and imposter syndrome? Yeah, so very different uh, things, uh, each of them. Um, failures, I think the biggest failure is to quit a larger agenda. I, I remember even when I was interning, uh, during when I was an undergrad and interning at MIT, I remember halfway through... I thought it was too hard for me. I'm not good enough. Uh, it's not going to work out. Uh, and I even thought of um, like just leaving. Mm. But I knew that my advisor was happy and I had no idea why she was happy with me. Like, why is she happy with me? I'm clearly not doing good progress. And I remember speaking also to my, to my uh, uh, family and my mother and she was like, you know, I mean, you can book a ticket and come back, but just wait it out. Like, enjoy your life, go out if you want. And of course, my mother knew that I was not going to do that. Uh, and I just, and I pushed through. And at the end of the, the summer, uh, my advisor told me, oh, you're the best undergrad I've ever worked with. I want you to apply to my group for a PhD. And I did not understand why. Uh, and this is where it goes also to imposter syndrome, uh, where people don't know when they are good, if they are good. Mm. We always, in my uh, in my group, usually in the beginning of every academic year, we talk about imposter syndrome because we have new students. Right. And I tell them, if you want to, it's very hard to overcome your current imposter syndrome. We all have it at any time. Um, the way you want to think about it is think about your previous state, not the current stage you are in, and ask yourself, were you good enough? So when I was in school, I probably, I had an imposter syndrome. I would go to a new grade. I would have the imposter syndrome again. I would go to undergrad. I would have the imposter syndrome. I became, at, I came to MIT as a graduate student and I had the imposter syndrome. But the way I uh, tell myself now is I, I tell myself, let me look back. Was I, if, one, if I feel like an imposter now as a faculty, was I a good graduate student? I'm like, yeah, I was a really good graduate student. I wish I, I would like to have a graduate student like myself be in my group. I mean, I, I think my students are great, but uh, just to say that this says, I think I was good enough. And when I was in grad school, I could say that about my undergrad. So the way to, to deal with, uh, uh, the failure is to quit. So the, day to, to, the way to deal with it is to persevere and to just work hard and keep moving forward. The way to deal with 
imposter syndrome uh, is to uh, remind is to look back and remind yourself at a previous stage uh, how well you were and this is and remind yourself how you did not think that you were not as great in that stage even though you ended up in hindsight you were definitely were great for that stage Sadly, many women researchers and entrepreneurs sometimes have to choose between raising a family with children and continuing their career. So they have successfully managed to do both simultaneously, raising a now three-year-old daughter while also serving as the CTO of her company, C2RO. Oftentimes, uh, women in uh, tech, but also in other fields, uh, when they start a family, they feel like uh, they have to choose between um, having a family and having children versus having a career. You have been successful in doing both. Uh, do you have advice for women who are trying to do both, have a family and have a career in tech? Mm -hmm. uh, very great question because that's like very, <laughs> this is, I, I even get emotional when I, when I think about it and, and think about the women that they need to, choose between those because as an entrepreneur as you mentioned initially c2ro the company was my child right. so i was picking to have a real child or kind of abandoning my my first one because i knew that i have to go to maternity leave i have to go through a process that anyhow it might not be my hundred percent in terms of the uh, uh time commitment at least and uh, that that initial decision was so difficult and have in mind that I have a super supportive husband. Right. Like I have a husband that, that we think uh, everything should be equal in terms of parenting. And maybe uh, just pregnancy was something that, that, that by nature we couldn't divide it. And the other rest, we were thinking of, okay, six months me, maternity leave, six months uh, my, my, my husband. And... Uh, it wasn't clear what will happen to my business, right? So, but but when when I started to think of having a family and that was like a non-negotiable for me, then then I realized, you know, I need to put my family first. And this is certainly, it must be like this, the family first, the health first, and then the work, right? Especially we went all through pandemic and we realized that I think even that that feeling is stronger now in in myself and and probably for for others so the lesson that i learned was uh first of all be very clear with your uh boss manager about you know when when you want to announce it you announce it and have a very clear empowered plan in terms of what you need to do what you want to do this um i think impression that when women get pregnant they have to they must I say goodbye to the workforce and like, you know, they're going to be vanished. I changed that perspective to the, for, for the incubator and investors that they were at the table at our boardroom. Because the moment that they heard it, they were like panic. But then I gave them a plan and I said, this is my plan. Mm. And I'm going to stick to it. I'm going to return back after six months. And even during the six months, this is the plan to stay connected. And then that was very successful. I returned back with the plan. Again, I had... 
I was lucky. I'm li- I'm living in Canada. The parental leave is is very well organized. Yeah. You can have divided uh, this this period between you and your partner. So everything was like established for us in a way of doing that equal job. And then because my 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 husband stayed with the kid for six months, of course he has a stronger bound. Mm-hmm. And versus other other husbands, right? Other fathers. Mm-hmm. And then when something happens, my my kid just called both of us. Mm-hmm. And when when there are like events that I need to attend, that the the business trips, I have no issue because my kid has a strong connection with her dad. And just imagine that if if this doesn't happen from day first, this loop is is misfunction, right? And then what I did, again, returning back to the perception, I changed that perception because I got back. The plan was as, as, I, as I presented. And then there were three other women, if I'm not mistaken, after me that they got pregnant, they were entrepreneurs, they returned back, returned back. They talked to me, we shared the plan. And there were no panicking for the VCs anymore, mm. especially that network of VCs that they knew us. Mm-hmm. Because they said, well, this is a natural process. They go and turn back. Mm. And I think if you start doing this in our network, in our bubble, just imagine that this perception going to be changing. And we are the one that we need to be agents. I think we should not be passive as women, especially if you are in like managerial executive role, if you are leaders. I think we need to have an impact ourselves. We need to start and talk about it. Otherwise, we overcame it with a lot of challenges. But why we're not sharing it with other women that are suffering exactly with exactly the same issues? That's very beautifully put, I think. Um, I think you, you said that I mean, changing the culture requires kind of changing the thinking of people as well. And I think what you're describing is a very active way to do that. While Absolutely. also, you know, uh, managing a family and, and, and also a career and, and what you described, uh, you know, the way of planning uh, the pause itself so that there is no panic on the other side. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's, that was very, very beautifully put. In the last act of this episode, we discuss diversity. First, the surprising revelation from Sudeh Farooqi that a large fraction of software engineering students in her Iranian university were women. Just how many? Listen on. I think you know that the schools in Iran are unisex, so we don't have, uh, uh, we were totally separated from from, um, boys uh, up to university. So, and then in university, uh, yes, it's mixed. And... um, yeah, for my entrance, and that was 2003, we had, I think, if I'm not mistaken, around 70% women, 30% men. So wow. uh, we were yeah. dominated. And I was not even thinking of, well, this might not be <laughs> a major for <laughs> for male. This was like ours. <laughs> uh, but, but of course, computer engineering is perceived to be more uh, kind of female-friendly, I would say, uh, versus other um, um other computer, uh, other engineering majors, like... Why is that? Um, especially software engineering. Uh, I think it's also the workforce, if you consider the workforce and where you work. For instance, for the mechanical engineering, you have to go to a lot of, you know, fac- uh, factories and plants, and then it might not be very suitable for women, at, at least for the, again, workforce in Iran. And electronic engineering, it's extremely 
it's perceived to be extremely difficult in terms of like and and I think that's kind of maybe is a little bit at least from my point of I wasn't that much interested but also it was like a little bit um too much uh intense years of a study and at, at the end I was not sure what would be the future for that for that major for a woman in Iran so um computer engineering uh you know you could go to a lot of software companies that at that time it was also a good um uh, a good market hmm. Um, yeah, and then the courses, you don't need to go to lab, you know, the, the particular labs that are, you know, maybe you don't consider them um, female friendly in terms of the, uh, again, atmosphere. Uh, overall, the culture is male dominated, but, you know, <laughs> this one in particular was female friendly. So 70% women is, is a very large fraction. That's not anything that we see in North America or even in Europe. Uh, the, the women who went into software engineering in Iran with you, did they eventually go on to jobs? I mean, did they have careers um, or was it just a degree? What is your experience from people that you know? Yeah, um, I think it's also very depends on uh, the university that you, you did your, um, your major for our university because they were like quite good students that they could get to that, uh, that university. Um, actually, is is unfortunate to say the majority of them are actually now here. Either they are PhD mm-hmm. graduates or working in top best software companies in the world in North America or Europe or Australia. So they migrated, right? So and mm-hmm. and then yes, all of them, majority of them, I think maybe above eighty ninety percent of them are working in the um, STEM field. So they mm-hmm. stay in the STEM field because, you know, because all the benefits that women get in, in the STEM field, higher salary, better status, uh, job opportunities and so forth. And even in Iran, yes, the job opportunities for women are really good uh, for, for STEM, especially software engineering, I would say. So, yes, they, they stay. But in private school is a bit different. So private school, when you are rich and you just go for, you know, having that major, um, uh, I think my, 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 at least observation was that it's not the case always that they stay in that field because they just wanted the, maybe the, the status of it. Right. So it's yes. a different uh, perspective, but I don't have that perspective, so I cannot comment on it that much. Can you contrast your experience of starting C2RO in Canada with your experience of starting your company back in Iran? What were the harder things about doing it in Canada and what were the harder things about doing it in Iran? <laughs> Interesting question. I would say um, in Iran, because I was not thinking that this is like a startup and we are like founders and we need fund and etc. It was like, a, and we were, I would say, much more immature, you know, we were 27. Um and we did, we are not thinking of any fund and like what's the uh, are we owning it like what the cap table the shareholder like n- n- nothing, and we were not even asking the right question that we should have asked at that time, um. So my experience was purely passion, and energy and excitement for building and you know launching a new thing, and and that's it. So it wasn't around the financial side of it. Would it be? You know, of course, we were thinking that would it be successful or not, but it was like in a different, um, I was in a different mindset. But 
and and I was not targeting, you know, the way that what would be the right way of doing it. I was just trying it in a way. But based on that experience and doing service, I, I realized that I actually want to build something and grow it. I don't want to just sell it like as a service and then all of a sudden start over. And that was like the idea of, all right, I want a product company. I want a high tech company. I want this domain and, and I want to do it right. I want to build it in a way that has less risk of um, uh, failure. So my experience in Canada, I was very aware of entrepreneurship. I, I was very much knowing what I need to do and what are the obstacles actually in a way, because I was educating myself in Vienna about entrepreneurship and I had a lot of skills that I learned throughout my PhD mm. that I use very well in the entrepreneurship journey back in Canada. And I didn't have it before. And that was really helpful. So the experience, I think we, I, maybe I, I could say I cannot quite compare them because the, the frame of mindset for me was very different. And the awareness of what I'm doing was very mm. different. And here... In Canada, I exactly know. I went through an incubator. I got half a million uh, very soon. And then I had the real money, real investors. Uh, we had a cap table. I was, you know, accountable for the success of the company. So, um, uh, and, and amazing feeling, very rewarding. And the level of challenge was extremely higher than the, than the previous experience that I had. And we end with a beautiful quote about diversity by Fadil Adib, MIT professor. Like there is a beauty in being able to come from a very different background and come here as well. Um, I think you're bringing a different you're you're bringing different perspectives, which is why being surrounded by a very international international people also bring so much perspective. Most of my late night grad school was me speaking to my like friends and trying to learn about their cultures. This was the lead episode on immigrant computer scientists titled Middle East Entrepreneurs, featuring immigrant computer scientists who migrated from the Middle East to Canada and to US and to Europe as well. But these were merely excerpts of much longer interviews. Coming up in the next episodes are the full interviews with Sudeir Farohi, entrepreneur and co-founder of multiple companies in Iran and Canada, and Fadil Adib, professor at MIT. Stay tuned. All the music used in episodes of the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast is royalty-free. All voice recordings were performed with and are reproduced with full consent of narrators and participants. You can find music credits on our website. Join the online discussion about this podcast on all major social media, including Twitter and Facebook, with the handle CSImmigrant and hashtag CSImmigrant. And of course, the episode guide is available at our website, csimmigrant.org. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists Podcast.